Welcome to Bayou City Fellowship. Why don't you take a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible that you own or one that you own is hard to read, we would love to give you one as you leave today. There are a bunch on a table out there. Uh, So just go and grab one. If you have a friend of yours who could use one and you have the courage to uh, hand it to them, uh, then please take one and give it away. We believe in the Word of God here. Matthew chapter 6. So we're doing an experiment the next seven weeks. That's why I said that the next seven weeks will be the most important in the history of Bayou City Fellowship. Again, it's not a long history. I think we're 20 months in. But um, the next seven weeks, uh, our experiment is to see whether or not we can unlearn and relearn prayer. We need to unlearn prayer because I don't, I don't know about you. I can't speak for you. I can't speak for me that I have fallen into many powerless habits with prayer. Things that I do all the time that really have no fruit. If you are a follower of Jesus, I'm guessing there's at least one time during the week that you turn your attention to heaven to make a request. Uh, It could be over something simple like, please give me an up-close parking spot or, you know, let my boss be in a good mood today or let my husband be in a good mood today or or whatever it is. It may be something simple, but I'm guessing at, at least one time, hopefully you are turning your attention to heaven and yet most of us are not receiving the results that we would like. I think it's because we have learned some wrong things about prayer. Or we have taken on some powerless habits. So there are some things we want to unlearn. And then there are definitely some things that we need to to relearn. And so that's what we're doing the next seven weeks. And here's what I'm asking you. I've asked our staff to do this. I've asked some of our other leaders to do this. However much you pray during the week. It could be five minutes, it could be an hour, it could be five hours. Hello. Add an hour for the next seven weeks. So if you pray five minutes for the next seven weeks, I'm asking you as the pastor and shepherd of this church, could you please pray one hour and five minutes? You don't have to do it all in one sitting. I know some of you would be horrified by that. You can break it up however you want. If you do pray five hours, what I'm asking you to do is lean in for an extra hour. Because I believe what will happen is that whatever we sow for the next seven weeks, we will reap for the next seven years. We're going to lay some spiritual, invisible foundations these next seven weeks that we will build this church on for the next seven years. Whatever church you would like this to be, and I know that we all have a varied opinion of that, and that's a great thing. That's what makes the body of Jesus a beautiful thing. We're not all the same. We all have different needs and wants. But whatever church you would like this to be seven years from now, we need to start being that church and start praying that church into existence right now. Because if we don't pray now, we will not exist in seven years, or at least we will not be the kind of church that we would like to be. So we're going to take the next seven weeks very, very seriously, and I would love for you to lean in to that with us. So we're going to use the Lord's Prayer to guide us in these seven weeks. And I know that uh, some of us are cynical, cynical people, and somehow that is a badge of honor in our culture. We think that you are a critical thinker if you are cynical. You're not. You're just a grumpy person, and no one likes being around you. 
Well, there are many of us who are cynical, and I am also cynical on occasion. And, and I know some of us are thinking about prayer, and we go to that cynicism. And it's like, why do I, uh, you know, the reason I don't pray is because what difference does prayer really make in the end anyway? God is going to do what he wants to do. He's sovereign. He's big. He's in control. I don't pray now anyway, and everything seems to be working out fine. Why should I pray? God has it all under control, and he's going to do it anyway. Well, you're right. He does have it all under control and he has full power and he's going to bring this thing to the place that he wants it to go. But in his sovereignty and in his power and in his uniqueness, what he has said himself, that he will respond to your prayers. In all of his power, in all of his glory, in all of his sovereignty, He has worked you praying into that. So your prayers do matter. Your prayers do matter. He has said that he will be affected by what you pray. And we want to pray that extra hour will at first feel like a burden to you. But in the end, it will be a blessing to you because nothing energizes your soul like answered prayer. There's nothing that can reinvigorate your faith like seeing God intervene in your life. Uh, So about two and a half weeks ago, Amanda and the kids and I, we loaded in the car and we went to go get a pizza. So we went to a pizza restaurant that's not too far from our house. We were maybe gone an hour, but you know here in Houston, in in an hour, a storm can come in and and go out. And so that's what happened. We were eating pizza there and, and the storm came in, thunder, lightning, the whole thing. Now we had left our dog outside because he was a muddy. We love our dog. He's an amazing dog, big golden retriever. He's got this big jug head and he opens his mouth always. It looks like he's smiling. His name is Beckham. And, and we left him outside because he was muddy or dirty. And, uh, you know, being outside in the rain for most dogs, not a big deal. Our dog has terrible phobia of storms, like just totally unreasonable, irrational. When it storms and he is inside uh, and he is alone, he will go and lock himself in the bathroom. Like literally he will go into the bathroom and he will shut the door behind him. Uh, that's how terrified he is of storms. If dogs could hyperventilate, he would because that's how terrified he is. And so he was outside when this storm came through and there was some good lightning and some heavy rain. And, and so when we got home from eating our pizza, uh, the, the gate was not open. The gate was still latched and the gate was still locked, but there was a dog shaped hole in the fence. He had literally busted out. His fear had come on him like the strength of Samson, and he had busted through the fence, and so he was gone. Now, he was, you know, our kid before we had kids. You know, Amanda and I got him when we were pretty young married so we could practice to see whether or not we would actually be good parents. And so he is a dog, but we have great affection for him. And and so we immediately went to to go and search for him. I got in the car, and I'm I'm driving around our neighborhood. And by this time, it was not raining anymore, so people are out and walking and exercising. And I'm stopping everybody. It didn't matter if they had their earphones in or not. I was honking the horn at them, rolling down the window, saying, have you seen a big white golden retriever running around here. And so for three or four hours, three hours at least, we, I'm driving around. Amanda had gone inside. She had posted some things on our neighborhood you know, website, a picture of them, put it on Facebook. And, and, and so she's in, inside doing that. And then she takes the kids. She's walking around the neighborhood. We got some of our friends who love us and love our dog. They're in on the mix. And, and by the time we were finished, everyone in our neighborhood knew that we were missing our dog. And they too were on the lookout. But yet he was nowhere to be found. And so it, it got late, it started to get dark, and, 
And we didn't have anywhere else to look. We had literally looked everywhere that you could look. And, and so we came home just praying maybe it would be different in the morning. We put our kids to bed. And about 10 o'clock, we're getting ready to go to bed. And I don't know what came over me. I put my shoes on and I walked down to the end of our street. And at the end of our street, there are like some running trails out there. People like to exercise. I don't, but people do use that for those things. And so I get down to the end of the street and I'm, I'm out there and it's just, it's pitch black. It's just nighttime, 10 o'clock at night, it's nighttime, just total darkness. And all day long, just been praying for a miracle, you know, and listen, I know that there are way more important things than dogs. So if any of you are like, what am I, then you obviously have never owned a dog and have a cold heart that's black. I don't know what to tell you. So I get it. There are bigger problems. But right then, that was my biggest problem. And I was asking God, do a miracle. We've searched, we've looked all day long and nothing, nothing. So I'm there at the end of the street, it's just pitch black. I don't even know what I'm doing out there in the darkness. But I just put my hands together and I yell, Becca! And out of the darkness, a voice emerges. Are you missing a dog? I said, yeah. This woman said, he's been in my backyard all afternoon. You can come and get him. Now, maybe you believe in random circumstances and that when you shout into the dark, whatever it is you're shouting will be returned to you. I I don't know, but I don't believe in that kind of thing. (laughs) It, It was amazing. I was so happy to bring the dog back. But what I was happier about was that God had heard my prayer. And I get it. It was not that important. In the long list of things that I would really like for him to do on planet Earth, it would be a long time before I got to my dog. But in that moment and all day long, I had been asking for him to intervene, and he did. That's why you want to add an hour of prayer onto your week, not because it makes you more holy or you're supposed to, but because it opens up endless possibilities for what God could do tangibly, visibly in your life. And it will fuel your faithfulness like nothing else on this planet. And so we're going to use the Lord's Prayer, take it apart in pieces, to guide us in this seven weeks. Uh, so we're going to say it together, the Lord's Prayer. Once you stand to your feet, you're going to see it on the screen. Uh, the amazing thing about this is right now in our kids' ministry, they are also learning the Lord's Prayer in the same translation of the Bible that we are. Our teenagers are doing it the same way. So by the end of this seven weeks, uh, ideally, you should be able to get in your car on the way home. And no matter who you brought to church outside of maybe tiny little babies, uh, you would be able to say the Lord's Prayer together as a family uh, or as roommates or whatever. Uh, So uh, can you bring that up? Matthew uh, chapter 6. We'll start with our Father. Here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So you've said it now. Now let's pray it together again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You can have a seat. So the Lord's Prayer starts with our Father. If you search the Old Testament, you see that God is referenced as Father just a handful of times. A couple of times He is the one who brings it up. He says that He's going to be a Father to the people of Israel. He tells King David that God will act as a Father to David's son Solomon. But it's just a handful of times that God is referenced, uh, referred to as Father. So by the time you get to the New Testament and Jesus begins to teach, he is, is using the word Father for God and in an unprecedented way. He was not the first person to refer to God as Father, but he takes it to a whole nother level. Even in just three short chapters, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, um, it clearly blows out the Old Testament uses uh, of the word Father in referring to God. Now you might be, well, that's, that's Jesus, and he was literally God's son. Of course he's going to call God Father. But as you read and see the way that Jesus talks about the Father, he's not just keeping the Father for himself. He's inviting us into that relationship too, which is what Galatians chapter 4 is telling us. Go ahead and turn there. You can keep your finger in Matthew chapter 6. But Galatians chapter 4... This is what it says in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, ladies, you may, you may notice that there's no female presence there. There's no daughters mentioned, and that shouldn't be an offensive thing to you. Uh, for one, this use of the word sons could be uh, similar to the way that we use the word mankind. The word man is in it, but we know when we're talking about mankind, we're including everyone. And as you read Galatians, there's no doubt that he's referring to both men and women. But there's also a great, uh, another benefit, another important application for us in the fact that this translation only uses the word sons. Because in the first century, if you were a daughter, you were loved by your family. And your family gave you many good things, but there was no financial resourcing you as the daughter in the way that a son would be resourced. And it's not fair and it's not right, but that was their culture. So if you were the firstborn son, you got a lot of the father's inheritance when that inheritance was passed down to you. If you were one of the other sons, then you got a smaller portion than the firstborn son. And if you were a daughter, you were loved and you were cared for, uh, but you were not going to be resourced in the same way that the sons were. And so the fact that it only says sons here, ladies, is a great thing for you because it's saying that men or women are elevated to the highest level of inheritance. That everyone shares in the promises of God. Everyone shares in the inheritance of God. Everyone is a part of God's family and gets the full benefits of being in God's family, not just a portion of the benefits based on whether you are male or female. And what does it say here? It says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit in, of His Son into our hearts. 
So when you are born again, which is something that needs to happen. When you are born again, you are born into the family of God. We've said this before, but it's important to say again that you are not um, into the family of God just because you were born physically on this earth one time. You know, you will hear people refer to, you know, people on the planet as, hey, we're all God's children. That's not true. We are all created by God. But the right to be called the son or daughter of God has to be given to you. And that right is given to you when you put your faith in Jesus, when you are born again, just in the same way you were born into your physical family, you are born spiritually into your spiritual family. And that's when you become a son or daughter of God. And what does it say? That the Holy Spirit is given to you when that happens, coming into your heart. And what does it say? That the Holy Spirit is saying something? No, the Holy Spirit is crying something. The Spirit of God is yelling When he comes to live in your heart, and what is he yelling? Abba, Father. Now the word Abba is Aramaic, and the word Father there is Greek, and and so it's really two different languages. But there's a connotation with that word Abba that's not uh, with the Greek word Father or even our English word Father. There was a a personal attachment to the word Abba. Uh, So uh, it would be similar to how if you heard somebody call their dad father, there would be a formality to it. You know, if they said, my father does this, or you heard them talking to their father and they referred to that man as father, you would understand that maybe there's either a lot of formality in that relationship, a lot of properness in that relationship, or maybe they're just not close in that relationship compared to if you heard somebody say the word dad. And so that's the difference between Abba and the word father. There's a personal attachment to it. But in our culture, you might hear somebody say, you know, hey, my dad, you know, left us when we were young uh, or my dad was never around. You would never hear somebody say, my Abba left us when we were young or my Abba was never around. Because that is a word where there has to be a relationship between the father and the son or the father and the daughter. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he is crying, Abba, Father, Now you get a personal relationship with God. You can relate to God as a son. You can relate to God as a father because the Holy Spirit has done this work in you. And then look at it, it says at verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So God has set you free from slavery to sin, He set you free from slavery to the elemental principles of this world, but he set you free from slavery not to make you a slave again, but to make you a son or a daughter. Now, if you're familiar with the scripture, there may be some scriptures flashing in your mind right now, like the Apostle Paul saying in many of his letters in the New Testament, he refers to himself as a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, if God didn't set us free from slavery to make us a slave, if we're no longer a slave, how, how does he refer to himself as a slave? Are we a slave or are we a son? Are we a slave or are we a daughter? You remember learning about medieval times? 
I don't remember that much about it, but what I do remember is a picture in a textbook uh, that there was a, a kind of a castle or a big manor house, and that castle was surrounded by a big stone fence. And outside that stone fence, in this picture of medieval times, there was a village, and outside the village there were the peasants, you know. And you know the peasants because they have tools in their hands. You know, they've got shovels, and they've got hoes, and they've got, you know, things to dig with. And so the idea was, is in the picture, the the lord or the king of that castle owned all that land, was in charge of all that, but it was the peasants who were out in the field and they were the ones working and they were the ones toiling and they were the ones reaping and and then they would go and they would sell, but they would have to give a lot of that back to the lord or the king behind that stone fence. So when most of us think of slavery, right or wrong, that's the idea that we're thinking of in terms of our relationship with God. That he is the king and he is in his castle, which is heaven. And there's a fence around it. We can't get in right now because we're here on earth. But we are the servants. We are the peasants. And we are out and we are toiling. But what that does is it just reaffirms internally to us that you're either one or the other. You're either a peasant out in the field. Or you're in the family of the king behind the stone fence. You couldn't be both in the picture, in the textbook. But in the kingdom of God, there is no distinction. Listen, all the servants are sons and daughters. All the peasants are sons and daughters. And all the daughters and sons serve. I mean, you have the son capital S, saying in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So there's not this distinction between I'm a servant of God or I'm a son of God or I'm a servant of God and I'm a daughter of God in the kingdom. You're one and the same. But because we have that picture, you're either behind the stone fence in the castle or you're out in the field. It's hard for us to carry both identities and most of us just fall back into our natural religious instincts. And if you're just relying on your natural religious instincts, how do you think this big deity up there that you cannot see is going to feel towards people? You think this big holy deity, this consuming fire is going to treat humanity like sons and daughters or like peasants? Well, your natural religious instinct is that that kind of God would treat us as peasants. And this comes out when we pray. Most of the time we pray like slaves and not like sons. Pray like slaves and not like daughters. We pray like peasants. We expect the bare minimum out of God. And I'm not talking about possessions or things. I mean, if you're a peasant in medieval times, in that picture, what do you think those peasants out in the field expected from the king behind the stone fence? Do you think that those peasants expected the king behind the stone fence to come out and be among them? To turn his face towards them, the lowly peasant? Do you, do you expect, think, or the, those peasants expected for the king to come out behind the stone fence and listen to the requests of the peasants? Or that that king behind his fence would take the peasants into consideration when he's making decisions for all the land? No, the, the peasants would have expected just the bare minimum from the king behind the stone fence. And if we only think of ourselves as 
slaves and not as sons, if we only think of ourselves as peasants, functions in the kingdom of God so that things happen that would make him happy, then you're just going to expect the bare minimum of God from God. You're going to believe that if he does turn his face towards you, it's only going to be for a split second. Or if he is going to hear one of your requests, it's going to be one out of every 50 requests. And you don't have any way of knowing which one it is that will be answered. And what most of us think is it's the one that we least want that actually ends up getting answered. That's peasant praying, not son or daughter praying. Here's the test so that you can know whether you pray like a peasant or a son or a daughter. When you pray, when you turn your face towards heaven, when you get down on your knees, when you get alone in your car, when you start that walk, whatever prayer looks like for you, do you really believe there is someone listening? Do you believe that there is someone on the other end of that prayer? Most of us don't. Most of us hope if we pile up enough prayer, eventually we will be noticed by God. That's peasant praying. A son or a daughter knows when they have the attention of their father and they know it is their right as children to have his attention. You are no longer a slave, a servant, yes, but you are not a peasant. The Holy Spirit has come into your heart and he did not come crying, get to work. He came crying, Abba and Father. The word Father has so many different connotations to it. Some of them are positive and some of them are negative. And then you take the word God and it has so many positive and negative connotations to it. And then you combine those two things. It can be really hard to get a clear picture of who we're talking about this morning. So I just want to show you a quick picture. Turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 is the story of Jesus' baptism. It says in verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So last week, uh, my parents took us on vacation, uh, took uh, my family on vacation, my sister's family, and so we all got together. It was a really, really great experience. And, and one of the days, we were going to a water park. I don't know if you've been to a water park in a long time. If you thought it was fun as a kid, it's also fun as an adult, and so maybe you should go back. Uh, it was a really great experience. But we were at a place where it was going to be really crowded, and, and I hate waiting in line, and so we were trying to out think and outsmart, you know, everybody else. And so we decided that we would go 
the last half of the day. You know, most people are showing up in the morning, getting ready for it. They're going to be there under the hot sun, and they're going to have a good time. But after a while, you know, you can only take three or four hours of being out in the sun like that, and they're going to go home. And as they're going home, we're going to get there. We're going to have the place to ourselves, which is a great idea in theory. The problem was that storm clouds were all around in the afternoon. There was not one to be seen in the morning, but they were everywhere in the afternoon. And so we're checking the updates as we're on our way to this water park, you know, and trying to find out is it going to be open, is it going to be closed. We get word that they have at least temporarily closed this water park. Lightning was somewhere around, and so they shut it down. But it may reopen if those storms pass. And you know, isn't that the worst? When you really need to be outside, and there's like one little glimmer of blue sky and darkness all around, you're praying that blue sky towards you. And, uh, and so that was what happened. We got to the water park 30 minutes later. They had, in fact, reopened it. But those dark Storm clouds are all still around, and now we have to make the decision. Are we going to pay for this? You know, we're on vacation, so it's not like we have unlimited days to come back. Are we going to pay and get in, take our chance to, you know, have a good time, or are we not because we're afraid we'll get in there and pay, and then we'll have to go home, and it won't be open anymore. And so as we're discussing this, one person in our party has already bought the tickets, and so it's like, well, I guess we're going to go in. (laughs) And sure enough, it rained for the first two hours that we were there. rained. But if you're going to be outside in the rain, it's best, you know, to be at a water park. That's kind of convenient. You're already wet. And sure enough, those dark clouds and that rain started scaring people away. And the park just started to empty out. And so for the last two hours that we were there, I mean, it was really just us. And at one point, Amanda had gone to get a hot tea. She likes that. And my parents were off with my sister's kids because they're little. And it was just me and Annabeth, who's four, and Jackson, who is uh, seven. And uh, there was this one ride that we loved. It was, it, all three of us could ride it, but it was still kind of thrilling. And, you know, we, we'd ride it, and then we'd walk all the stairs, you know, way back up and ride it again. And for a solid hour, we did nothing but just this big circle. Riding the ride, and then up the stairs... You ever have one of those moments where if you could just pause that moment, you would live in it the rest of your life? That you've got burdens and worries and cares and your life's not perfect, but that's like in the future or that's in the past. But for that one moment, everything is good. If I could have just pushed pause and lived at that water park for those last two hours for the rest of my life, I would. Because I'm watching my kids who, you know, they're very excited to ride these rides over and over again. So they're like running up the stairs and I'm kind of getting older up there. So I'm kind of creaking up them, you know, because it's a lot of stairs to get to the top. You know, a water slide in Houston would not be that fun if there were no stairs, you know, just, you know, straight flat ground. And so there are a lot of stairs, but I'm watching, you know, Annabeth, who's four. And she got them little legs, you know, and they're moving real fast up and down the stairs because they're so little. She got that wet ponytail, that blonde hair, those big eyes, that squeaky little voice running up those stairs. And my son, my firstborn son, who when he was coming into the world, Amanda is delivering him and I'm doing the dad thing, I'm counting. Just crying. And there he is, last week with his now seven-year-old skinny body with his bones all sticking out of him the way seven-year-olds do. He's hopping up those steps and we go up and we come down and up and come down. I told my father, my dad, as we were leaving, that is the most fun 
ever had with my children. Listen, what if we got that from him? What if that was his image alive in us when you feel that way about your kids or somebody has felt that way about you? What if that's not humanity? What if that is the image of our father in us? Because look at what he says. You are my beloved son. And listen to this. And with you, I am well pleased. I want you to imagine the, the first time that you're alone from this point on. So sometime later today or tomorrow on your way to work, the first time you're alone, God just materializes just right there with you. Father God, right there with you in your car on the way to work or at home alone when everybody else is gone for today. You're just alone and he comes and he says to you, I have some things I want to say to you. What do you think he would say? Based on some of your eyes moving up, I'm thinking it's not good. Not good what that guy would say to me. How long would it have taken you in your imagination of what God might say to you if he just materialized right here in front of you before he said, you make me so happy? I'm guessing if you're anything like me, it would have been a long time, if ever, before I imagined those words coming out of his mouth. But that's what he says to Jesus. You are my, not just son, but my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What does it mean to be well pleased? It means you make me happy. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that's Jesus. Yeah, of course, Jesus made him happy. Jesus never disappointed him. Jesus was always faithful. But look at what chapter of Mark this is. This is Mark chapter one. This is not Mark chapter 16 after Jesus has endured the cross and been resurrected from the dead. This is not, you know, in the middle of Mark when Jesus is making blind people see or he's converting some wayward sinner. No, this is the first time we see Jesus in Mark. He's not done anything yet in this gospel. And God is saying, you make me happy. And listen, what if it's not... We make him happy if we are like Jesus. What if he's just the kind of God who gets happy about his children? What if this doesn't have, his pleasure doesn't have anything to do with with us? What if he's just the kind of God who likes his kids? Because his love is love without condition. It's not tainted by our performance. His love is not watered down with your failure. His his love doesn't get blended in with your imperfection. It's pure, unfiltered love. because he is that kind of father it changes the way that we pray because he is our father you should pray with persistence 
That's what your brother, Jesus, your co-heir, told you to do in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. It says, he told them this parable so that they ought always to pray and never lose heart. Keep on asking. He doesn't grow weary of your prayers. Why? Because he is our father, your prayers are welcomed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says to pray without ceasing. He never wants you to stop talking. Imagine giving that kind of permission to your children, if you have children. What parent in this room would give that blank check to their kids? Listen, I just want you, I just always want to hear you in my ears. I just never want to go a second without you saying something to me. This, this past week, I think it was on Wednesday, I came home from work. Within the first five minutes that I was there, Jackson at least asked me a hundred questions. That's not an exaggeration. That's a legitimate number. A hundred questions. He asked so many questions of me in the first five minutes that I was home. I had to ban him from ending any sentence with a question mark for an additional five minutes. And he just struggled to sit there because he just had so many questions he wanted to ask. But God is not like us. He never grows weary of your voice. He just always wants you talking. Why? Because he is our father and he enjoys your prayers. Revelation chapter 8 describes the prayers of the saints. That's you and me. That's followers of Jesus. That's people who have been born again as incense in a bowl, the fragrant aroma that rises up to God. Your prayers smell good to him. He likes them. Listen, he does not hear your prayers out of obligation. He loves it. Loves to hear you pray. You're like, well, I'm not good at praying. Yeah, he probably loves that more. And think about how different that is, coming to prayer, knowing that he's coming too. That when you get into the space of prayer, he beat you there. That's how happy he is to hear your voice and to respond to your faith. He loves you praying just as much as you love him answering. He is our father. Let's finish back in Matthew chapter six. Again, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You notice that this prayer starts with our Father and not a need. You know, most of my praying is need and problem based. When I have a need, when I have a problem, then then I pray. But what happens when you don't have any needs? What happens when you don't have any problems? It's an amazing thing and blessing from God that we live in the United States of America and we can have jobs and those jobs pay us money and then God invented Walmart so that we can buy things for cheap, you know? I mean, most of us just solve our problems. That's not necessarily a bad thing. 
But it, what happens if you don't have any problems? Or your problems are trivial? Then most of us don't pray. But you notice that the model prayer, Jesus' prayer, doesn't start with a need. It doesn't start with a problem. It gets to that. Give us this day our daily bread. It gets to needs. But it starts with Father. If you just wait on some big need to pray, you won't pray. But if you pray because he's your father, then there's a whole other reason to pray. Because in prayer, we experience the presence and the pleasure and the power of our Abba. So in that spirit, let's pray together. Why don't you just say, Father, out loud to God together this morning. Father, let's say it again. Father. sons and daughters this morning we thank you that you do not treat us according to our transgressions Jesus we thank you for opening up the door to your father's house without you standing at the door Jesus as our intercessor as our mediator we would be orphaned and abandoned but you have brought us into your father's house we thank you for that Father teach us to pray not as peasants not as unwanted slaves expecting the bare minimum but as sons and daughters in Jesus name 